The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. We're about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very excited and honored to introduce to you my very dear friend and special guest this week, Marty Cove, also known as his, by his adoring fans as Sensei from the Karate Kid. Marty, welcome to A Current Life. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you. Uh, if you can bear with me for a minute, I'd like to properly introduce you to our guests. Uh, this show goes into over 180 countries, and um, we're very fortunate to have had some terrific guests, and I've wanted to have you on the show for a long time, having known you as long as I have. Marty, Marty Cove is an award-winning actor. His face and name are recognizable in nearly every household in the world. He has experienced huge success on the big screen as well as the small screen. Many people will forever know Marty as the infamous sensei from the Karate Kid movie, but some of our older fans will also remember you as Detective Victor Especky from the hit CBS television series Cagney and Lacey. Another one of your great films is Rambo, First Blood, Part 2, in which your character was the helicopter pilot. I could go on and on through all of your film and television roles, but that's not what this show is about. I want our listeners to get to know you, who you are as a person, and the kind of things you've been through in your journey of life, what you've learned from it, and how you can pass some of that on to our many listeners around the world. So I always start off the show, Marty, and I ask, you know, what were your early years like growing up in Brooklyn, New York? They were very active. You know, I was extremely hyper hyperactive, and uh, I come from uh, two parents. My mother was a bookkeeper, and my father was a hardware retailer. In fact, Cove Brothers Hardware is still in existence on 7th Avenue and 21st Street, and they have trucks riding around all the time, and a variety of, of um, friends of mine see them, and uh, I was just there last week, in fact, uh, in New York, and I still see the family and try to keep close contact with with everyone because lately family is more important than pretty much career, actually. Uh, uh, but that's another subject we can get into. But growing up in Brooklyn was terrific, and it was you know simple and punch ball and baseball, and I was always an athlete. And I enjoyed those roots. And I guess after I was bar mitzvah, we moved to Queens, and it was more country and playing again, but athletics and and uh, family being close and relations being close. It was a lot easier in existence there than when I moved to California. Let me ask you, in growing up, were you a tough kid? Were you a kid that uh, I think I remember you telling me once that you were bullied 
and I know that's such a hot subject around the world today, particularly in America. What were you like? Were you a tough kid? Were you a kid that, you know, uh, what were some of your fears and some of your things that you went through, probably some of your more fond memories? Well, I, I, I remember in regard to bullying, I was bullied once. I, was, I went to uh, Lefferts Junior High School, which was in Brooklyn, and it was the seventh grade, and, and this big fellow just dropped big fellow dropped me to the floor, took out a, a little knife, held it to me, and took 50 cents out of my pocket. And I was a seventh grader, and he was, you know, a ninth grader, and he, uh, he bullied me and, and uh, threatened me, and I, I just stuck up for myself, told my mother, and we, we found out his name and ultimately brought him to the authorities. And it was the Juvenile Aid Bureau at the time, and he had a record, and, you know, we, we, we let it go because his mother begged us, and but it, it kind of, I stood up for myself, but I was bullied and I was frightened. And it was a tough school. And I guess all my life I've always looked for the better points in people. I've never really been vengeful. And despite the characters I play, I, I've always found the good points in people. And um, I try to, I love the high school reunions and I love staying in touch with that old world. Because the world I live in here is Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's not as sincere as what we had when we were younger. And I was always driven by fantasy, and I was always going to the theater and going to the plays where I could see Sound of Music and West Side Story in the early 60s and watch the Vikings in 1957. And, you know, last night I watched The 13th Warrior with Banderas. And uh, all the memories came back of how much I want to be in those kind of movies, even still. You know, because I, I, I did Street Cunning Desire, which gave me a great level of confidence in 1973. And then I picked myself up and came west so I could do some action films and do some of those adventure movies that were longing dreams for me as a child. So let me ask you, you know, were there any particular life-changing opportunities or events, obstacles that you faced other than the particular bullying incident as you were growing up as a child? Yeah, I was a thrill seeker. You know, I was. A, my parents were wonderful people. I was adopted, and uh, they were wonderful people. But they were very frightened. They were depression era people, and they were very frightened of the wind. You know, they would put a down payment of twenty dollars down on the house in Queens, and then go and ask for it back. They were very frightened. They thought they, thought they could make the payments, and I was the other end of the spectrum. I was the fantasist who was, you know. Act, jumping on, you know, the, the armchair of their furniture and galloping to the soundtrack of Guy Williams' Zorro, you know, or watching at that time, um, you know, the, the Searchers or Red River or whatever. And I was always in another place. So what made you like that? I, I think, you know, two things. I think that I just appreciate the mundaneness of what went on in my home, the fear level. A very loving parents, very loving parents, very affectionate, the only child. But I believe it was that they were scared, and I didn't want to be that way. I felt there was a, a, it was stifling their lives. You know, they didn't seem to enjoy their lives as much as I would have liked them to be, to, to enjoy, because they were, they were wonderful people, but they were people out of an era of fear. And um, I just couldn't identify with that. It was limited sort of sophisticated activity and my father and I would watch combat on television and and we would never really discuss current events and that you know my father wasn't like that 
and uh, he finished school at seventh grade, and that was it. And my mother was very self-sacrificing. So she would always take care of dad and take care of the family, and everything was fine, and never really zeroed in on any pain that was going on in their lives. And we didn't talk about that much. So I wanted to get out of that. And fantasy and movie-making and going to the theater and working in repertory and doing classical repertory at the time and being in plays was the answer for me. So what gave you your break, uh, or when did you know you wanted to be an actor? I mean, what were, and, and what other odd jobs did you have maybe along the way? But what, what, what really was that wow moment when you said, oh, I'm going to be an actor? I was doing a play called The Golden Goose in the fourth grade. And I just, we got on stage, and it was a funny little play, and I just felt so comfortable being on stage. And at that time in, in one's career, I was overacting. Just, you know, really overacting, indicating, call it, you know. Somehow I could see that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I was just saying, how are you, you know, instead of something, how are you, you know. It was just that kind of world. And I was just doing it all the way through high school. And many times what was really funny is when I went to college, I was in a school, Queensborough Community College, that did not have a good drama department. So I would go to other universities like Hofstra, Queens College, other places where I was not in attendance of, and I would audition for their plays, and I would get the parts. And sometimes I was able to function within the play because the school was big, but like one time I got, uh, I got the part of Hector Hushabai in George Bernard Shaw's Heartbreak House at Hofstra University, and they were so clicky that they researched me and checked me out and realized who is this phantom Marty Kovic came in and took the lead of the play. Well, Without going, you know, because I don't want to jump ahead because we're going to talk about so many different things here, and we like to try to kind of, what was that moment when what really gave you your shot? You know, uh, we've interviewed a lot of different people, and there's always seemed to be a, a wow moment. You know, for me, I often talk about it. It took a long time for me to figure out I like to build things and, and create things and, and make things happen with people, and, and took a long time. You know, I did a lot of things before that. What, what was that moment, that wow moment, when it went, whoa, I've got my shot. I know exactly what I want to do, and this is what I'm going to be. And, and, and where was that one moment that gave you that opportunity? I was working with a director named Gene Frankel, and we were doing a play called Volponi. And he had me do this Captain of the Sibiri role. And he had me do it in a New York accent. And then when it, a day before we, we did the show, it was a senior show, and he was, he was a Broadway director, and they brought him into Martin Van Buren High School in Queens. And the day before, he told me, before the show, he said, drop your accent, and now just do it as Martin Cove. Do it straight. And the performance was day and night, day and night. And I realized that, that this is truly the art form that I need to cultivate. And I was all of 17, and I, you know, would do plays, but I never took it seriously. And then one day when that happened to me, it was a catharsis. It was just, it was amazing. And I knew that I had to forge ahead. And, um, you know, I just did work in theater and classical stage company and Lincoln Center and all that and came out to California with, I guess, seven, eight years, I guess about ten years later, Came out of California with $1,000 and a list of people to see on a yellow pad. 
But the moment was when Gene Frankel said, drop the accent and do Marty Cove. And then I realized Martin Cove was okay. I finished the play. I said, wow, that was really successful. And I was, I, I was applauded for, for being so funny. So for our listeners, because, you know, they're, they're, one thing I learned is that there's, when I lived in Hollywood and made movies, and for our listeners, one of the first movies I was involved with was one of your first pictures, I guess, that you did Atlantic releasing with Tom Coleman. Uh, and Seal Award was uh, uh, Still Justice. And, uh, but everybody, you know, in Hollywood was, a, was an actor. They wanted to be an actor. They worked as a waitress. They wanted to be an actor. They wanted to be an actress. What was that moment when, and what year was it when you got the role in CBS TV series Cagney and Lacey, which what ran for nine years? Is that about right? About six. Six years. Six. So well, how'd that opportunity come about? Well, I was one of three people that was legitimately up for the part, and it was a show that you know had a very colorful path and a colorful run. I mean, it was a two-hour movie. And with um, Loretta Swift, and then had Meg Foster opposite Pine Daly for four shows. Then it was canceled. Then they moved in Sharon Gless and for a whole 22, and then it was canceled again, and a writing campaign brought it back. But the character was really written two out of four shows. And because I was allowed to play, I was allowed to be this character who disapproved of the women, who basically... My research was working with policemen who had a problem with women being on the force. And I was, in playing Becky, what rang true for me and made me feel so good about myself and understanding the role was that I literally felt that I was a sheriff because I'd always wanted to be in West. I was a sheriff in the 14th precinct. And it was the closest thing that this character, Victor as Becky, could do to become a sheriff in the Old West. He joined the police force to be, uh, be a cop, and ultimately the women were not a place in his persona. The women, there was no place for female cops. And now Was this around 1981? Yeah, this is exactly. It was 1981-82. And uh, it was part of what he felt, and it all rang true. And I got as much mail as the women. I kept saying, can I, you know, can I have... Now the show was award-winning, wasn't it? Oh, won Emmys all the time. And, and and your character really stuck out. I mean, tell me how it changed your life, that character. I remember watching it every week, and you were fabulous in it, by the way. You were absolutely wonderful in it. Uh, you were a great contrast to the two female characters, and I'm sure every woman in America fell in love with you. Uh, you know, I'm honored when sometimes people tell us we look like brothers, but uh, you, were, you were certainly uh, um, the hit. Uh, within a show that was a big hit. And so not only did you achieve, I think, a lot of uh, stardom and, and praise for your acting, but people, you know, this was a hot show, and it ran for six years, which in those days was a long time. Certainly, especially being canceled twice. You yeah. know, and still which was not uncommon in those days, was it? <laughs> oh, no. Well, you know, two women who were, I mean, I would do lots of press, you know, and I would always refer to them as, I mean, I shot my gun six times in six years, you know. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, there was any time there was an action sequence written that Victor as Becky would do, we would read about it in rehearsal, and it would have sounded great. And then it, it, would, it would turn out to be oh, an opening scene that we just 
we physically uh, uh, captured the perp already, and the scene was cut out because the girls could never do action at well. They were wonderful chicks, wonderful girls to work with. But the bottom line is, my character was minimized, and it was very frustrating because I wanted to do more. I had different aspirations, and yet I was doing successful things there based on the quality of the show. You know, based on the scripts, and they would take it from current events from the New York Times. And I, I learned that volume, as an actor, was not really the game. How many times as we as actors are starring in movies that no one ever heard of, that go right to DVD, and yet you get a small part in a movie like White Earp with Costner, two little scenes, and yet it's pretty funny. I mean, I remember when Jackie Collins called me up and said, I think you're the funniest thing in the movie. You get the cue ball thrown in your throat, you know, and she says, you're the funniest thing in the movie. The movie's really dark and you're hysterical. You and I have talked about this a lot. We're going to go to a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about a lot of the uh, movies and and obviously the role in Karate Kid and the different things. But we've talked a lot about how Hollywood's changed and, and, and skewed younger and all those things and maybe skewing older because of the baby boomer generation. But certainly... We've talked a lot about quality over quantity, something that I think a lot of people, because they're, they're there for the money rather than the fact that, you know, you can have a few lines and you can get, a, you get an, an Academy Award nomination or not even have any lines anymore and just look and make a, make a face and, you know, um, and get, an, get, get nominated. So when we return, uh, it's, uh, uh, we'll talk about that. This is Jimmy Gould with my good friend, Marty Cove, and you're listening to A Current Life brought to you by Smartwater, Ohio Midwestern College, and AdSpace Mall Networks. Please stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, and today I have a very special guest here with me, Marty Cove, sensei from Karate Kid. Marty, when we, we've been talking about Cagney and Lacey and about kind of film in general and, and the changing environment, um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, how Karate Kid came about, how you got chosen for that. I think the first one was made, what, in 1986, if I remember correctly, 1984. 84, yeah. 84. And you were doing Cagney and Lacey at the time, and you got a call. Tell us a little bit about how all that came about. Oh, it's a funny story. and. I got a call to to come in and and, and uh, read and uh, for this heavy, and uh, they had gone all over the country. They couldn't find what they wanted, so they were already shooting the movie. And I, she said to me, "You have a whole week to study the casting woman. Her name is Carol Jones, and 
all of a sudden I get a call the very next day after looking at the script, you have to be on the set at noon, John Avelson would like to meet you. And I said, but you gave me a whole week to study. <laughs> no, it's now or never, kid. Be on the set in Reseda out here. At uh, uh, So I was so angry. I was so angry. So, you know, my wife at the time said, use this anger. Take it. Take it. You know, take it into the part. And the part was mercy is for the weak here and on the streets, me parading through the, the aisles in the dojo. And uh, I, so I went there, and I just said, I blasted the director, and I said, you know, you're a real putz, John Avelson. <laughs> we wait for years to meet directors of your caliber, and now you don't give me any time to, re- to read. We fire our agents, we fire our managers to meet characters like you, and now you give me a morning to prepare. And I went right into, mercy is for the week, here and on the streets, blah, blah, blah. Went on, he loved it. He loved being abused. He loved <laughs> the fact that the energy, it helps with the energy. I ended up... He says, now he sent me to Jerry Weintraub. I had to do the same thing, and Jerry Weintraub was four days later than he was supposed to be there. So I, when I met him, I said, you know, Jerry, you're a real putz, Jerry. I've waited four days to meet you, and you've kept me waiting. I'm on pins and needles. You're just terrible. Mercy is for the week here and on the streets. And he loved it. The rest was history. I got the part. Did you have any idea what this role would do for you and how popular a movie it is. I don't think that there's a, there's probably not a week, maybe not even a day, somewhere in the world the movie's not playing on television. You're right. It's like a Lucy show. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really, it's like that. Uh, no, we never, I mean, we never thought of this iconic, the, the, you know, it, it became an icon and, and the newest DVD has our interviews about what it was how it was to be part of something that's, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later, an iconic movie. I mean, I remember when, when I got these calls to go on radio shows and talk about Will Smith's show, people were in an uproar that they were being violated, that how dare Will Smith make a movie. And, you know, it was a good movie. And I said, hey, you guys, you know, I went on the variety of shows uh, on Fox Sports and all, and I would say, guys, there's no need to be angry. It doesn't compete with Karate Kid 1. It just pays homage to it. Right. And it did. And when so I how many to... kids come up to you on the street today, recognize you and kick you in the leg, or, or how many people see you and tell you sweep the leg? I mean, tell me about, because I was with you once walking into somewhere in Cincinnati, Ohio, and the minute you walked in, the place just went into bedlam. And, you know, they yelled, Sensei, and the next thing I know, everybody was buying rounds of drinks for you. I mean, it was like, and I just sat there and just, oh, I couldn't believe it. Uh, I mean, when you read for that part, did you have any idea what this was going to become? No, I really didn't. And I was doing Cagney and Lazy at the time, and I figured, well, I'll play another heavy, you know, we're down on the show for a while. And... um I just, you know, I wasn't even there for the screening, for the premiere. I was doing another movie. So, you know, my wife at the time, and she went and loved it, and she said, you did a good job. But no one ever said anything, you know, that it would have the life power that it has and basically the strength that it has. But to answer your question, about a month ago I went to um, a – a martial arts convention, the Academy Awards of Martial Arts. It was in Atlantic City. And I just went there as like an autograph show, and I didn't know what to expect. It was 1,100 martial artists, and people would come up to my table and 
say, you know, I got into martial arts because of you, because of your performance, and now I own 30 dojos. And then a grand marshal would come up to me and say the same thing. And then a five-time world champion would come up to me and says, I got into martial arts because of your performance, and you don't know what you've done for the, for, for the sport itself. And I was humbled, just humbled to my knees because, and, you know, I didn't expect this. And you look at it as a body of work. You don't look at it as anything other than the body of work, and you move on. And it is just incredible. Uh, it's just truly incredible, the power of, the, of this character. But it's really the script, and it's really the message. And everybody takes it so personal because everybody's been a Daniel. Everyone has experienced that kind of bullying, that kind of pressure, including myself. So the iconic message that that movie gives everyone is interpreted differently but richly by everybody it touches. Were you already familiar with martial arts when you I was I was we were doing a movie called The Lion of Ireland from the book called uh, The Lion of Ireland by Morgan Llewellyn and I was a Viking adversary. In fact, I just watched The 13th Warrior last night and it was really interesting. And uh it was a great Viking film, and then Margaret Thatcher changed the tax laws so we couldn't do the movie. But I was working with plywood axes and a variety of learning kendo moves in, in sword class, which is basically a, a very you know, similar um, foundation to karate. And I was working with a, you know, my own sensei, Shion Takaboda, and it just was timely. And it's all the same foundation, same similar katas, um, and I just made the segue. And, but Pat Johnson, who ran with uh, Chuck Norris in the tournament days of the 60s and 70s, who was a stunt coordinator, who did all three Karate Kid movies and, you know, Batman movies and, and Ninja Turtle movies, he helped create the character by training Pat Morita, the Cobra Kai, and Daniel all separately and myself. So it created the mystique of each character. No one knew what the other was going to be like physically. Each faction of the movie was a mysterious faction to the other. And it turned out great. And I copied his key eyes. I copied, you know, the way... It, it, it was quite fascinating. He, of course, takes no credit for it. I give him most of the credit because it was great watching such a master. And uh, Now, I, what, I, happened, what happened in the sequels... And and you you did not do two, but you did three. What what happened exactly? Well, I did two. I did two, and um, they I really they had a great idea for two, and then it became too expensive, so they changed it. Uh, they were going back in time, and the Cobra Kai's were pirates, and I was the head pirate. It was like almost like Pirates of the Caribbean. And then they changed it to a, a simpler story. But in three, it was my story. It was all about. It was written for me. And I couldn't do it because I got a television series called Hard Time on Planet Earth for CBS. And it broke my heart. And I couldn't get out of it. I was the lead character. And they had to bring in Thomas Ian Griffin to do what I was supposed to do in the movie. So they put me on vacation within the confines of the show. And then he goes on and executes what, uh, to, the, to Daniel and brings in Sean Kanan, who's a very good friend, who's a wonderful filmmaker as well into the show as the bad boy. And, you know, it, you can't really sort of like I'm the Darth Vader of the karate world. It's hard to bring in a new franchise villain. And I don't think the show was as successful as it could have been. But um, 
it was still a very good movie and a lot of fun to do. And, uh, you know, it, it's amazing. The, the power of these films, like you say, they're on every day. Let's, let's uh, kind of segue to Rambo. Uh, I still remember the great scene in the helicopter when Stallone punches you. Uh, that was Rambo First Blood Part Two, which was shot in 1985. Uh, what was that like? First of all, working with Sylvester, and and also, kind of your part in that, and 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 a lot of people remember you in that part. Um, you know, when we talk to people. Well, it was interesting because last night was the second, the first movie that Sly and I did together, Capone with Ben Gazzara, and it was on last night on the on the FX channel, on the Fox channel, which was really funny. But Sly and I go back to having uh, a personal manager named Kuno Spoonholtz, who was this manager who you asked earlier about jobs we would get. Sly would get a job in New York City at the Baronet as an usher. I would get a job as Santa Claus in Abraham and Strauss department store. And these are the kind of jobs we got in the early 70s. Ultimately, we both came out to California together, and we did, um, we did Capone together, and then Death Race 2000. And then after the success of Karate Kid, they had asked for me to play this character. Um, and uh, we had a good time. We went down to Acapulco, and it was a tense set, very tense set. And it was about a $26 million movie at the time, but it was the first movie of one man against the world. Then came, you know, Commando and a lot of the Chuck Norris films. But Sly did very well. He had nine lines, and he, you know, coordinated this picture and it had made enormous amount of money in, in marketing but it was tough i had to get out of cagney lacy for three weeks and we had to get up very early and we all were on the set at the same time no one got individual calls we all were there by nine ten o'clock and we worked and uh it was it was rough it was really rough uh but but you knew when you read the script it was sent to me. It was 85 pink pages, and it was nothing but mayhem. And in those days, you knew it was going to be successful. Did you like working with uh, Sly? Yeah, I like socializing with him. You know, I, I've been trying to get him to throw me in one of these expendable movies, but he's got MMA on his mind. But, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. We had a lot of fun together. And, uh, you know, we, we went back to, to you know, Kuno Spoonholtz days. So we, we had a good time together, you know, and uh, he's very funny. He's very funny. I just like being with him privately. I like being with him alone because when there's a lot of other people around, it gets a little confusing. And, but when you're with him separately, it's, you know, one-on-one. -on -one, we have a really good time. He's a very funny soul. Now, you know, we had um, um, uh, Celia Ward on the show, and you did Steel Justice with her, and you've also uh, uh, had a great role in Wyatt Earp. What were some of those memories like working with Kevin Costner and then also with Sheila Ward uh, in those two movies? Sheila was so beautiful. I mean, you know, you just stare into her eyes. And in those days, you know, Steel Justice being my first romantic hero, it's like, you know, I wanted just, you know, I didn't even care about the action so much. I just wanted to do one scene we had in the hot tub and it was cut out where, you know, we're lovers and we're sitting and having dialogue there and, Every time I did, I kept thinking, you know, of, of oddly enough, of Clark Gable, of, of, you know, Casablanca, of some of my romantic, you know, uh, favorites. And, you know, you try to do that as an actor. I, I'm always in action sequences, and, and yet that genteel 
those genteel scenes, those affectionate, sensitive moments that I had with her were more rewarding to me than anything else because I don't get a chance to do it very much. And I totally enjoyed how she participated, very vulnerable, and I was so happy to be there with her in the moment as an actor and as a, as a human being because she was really beautiful. And she she, was She's of, also a wonderfully gifted person, individual, human being with her charitable projects and her her hope mission and various other things. She She's became a, a terrific actress in that show. Yeah. I would watch that show. And she, you know, she just migrated into this space of, of being a very sophisticated actress, and I was so happy for her. So if there's anybody that you could work with right now on the next project, who would it be? And well, I guess uh, you would probably do a Western, knowing you like I do, but what would it be? I'd like to work with, you know, one of two people, Philip Seymour Hoffman or Sean Connery. Yeah. You know, I mean, I just saw a Death of a Salesman in New York last week, and he is just brilliant, just brilliant. And, uh, I, I, you know, and of course, Sean Connery, because one of the first jobs I ever had was to stand in in a movie called The Anderson Tapes, and I bumped into him 10 years later. And uh, he didn't remember me, but we played tennis together, and then we became friends. And I did Hunt for the Red, for the Red October and a couple of things. But he, you know... One of my favorite films of all time is The Wind and the Lion, directed by John Milius. And I got married to the soundtrack of The Wind and the Lion. That's how much I loved it. And his oh. characterization of Raizuli, Lord of the Riff. I mean, we're talking just a major, so major, so exciting, so much further down the line than, you know, than just the James Bond stuff. The Molly Maguires, the, doing something with Sean Connery now would be wonderful. Now, doing, doing, let me switch gears a little bit. I, I did read that you actually injured your hand during the filming of The Karate Kid Part 2. You were in a fight scene, and the effects team mistimed the shattering of a car window, and you actually broke it with your own hand. Is that true? And, and do things like that happen? I mean, because uh, you play such tough parts sometimes. I mean, I would imagine there have been near misses or, or actual things that have happened that have hurt you. Certainly. I mean, you get so involved. I mean, the, that scene was originally written as the end of Karate Kid 1, where I have a confrontation with Miyagi in the parking lot. Uh, it was originally written in Karate Kid 1, and then they just literally, we were ready to do it back in 1984, and they cut it right there. Three hours delay, and they cut it, and we never got to do really the strong action uh, sequence that it was. So two, three years later, when we're doing the sequel, we're practicing, and I kept lunge punch, you know, over his shoulder and hit the window, and I'm supposed to take out the window. But the, the, the window, just the charge in the base of the door, just never really seemed to work, even in rehearsal. And uh, he said it would work, and I kept lunging and punching and hitting the window, and he never, it never blew. And he said, don't worry, it'll work this time. And so we rolled the camera after several rehearsals, and I kind of felt, well, I won't really, you know, lunge, I'll just punch, because if I took a full step, my whole arm would go through the thing, and God knows what would happen if it didn't break and shatter per the charge, and sure enough, it didn't, so I put my fist right through, it's the real glass, it was supposed to shatter an inch before you reach it, and, you know, shards were sticking in my hand, and it was a terrible thing, and uh, we ultimately put new skin on and taped it up, and and 
um, tried it again, and still it didn't work, and I just didn't punch as hard. We wrapped. I looked at John Avelson, and I said, John, this is not the hand of Arnold in the Terminator. This is a real hand. <laughs> and he said to me, okay, that's a wrap. They used that scene of me going into the window for real, with real blood and all that. And then the next day we shot the scene me coming out of the window, which was, um, which was fake. But going in that movie, going in that window is real. And those kind of things happen all the time. You know, you just... Uh, well, let, movie let, last night. I mean, when we come back, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the shock of moving from New York to California and some of the things you feel about the industry and some other things. We actually received two emails, one from Maria from Long Island, and her question to you is, what do you dislike the most about the industry that you're in, and what do you like the most? Well, what I dislike is something I talk about a great deal. The Im- it's become very impersonal. It's become, you know, everything is electronic, everything. I would actually say in the last two weeks, I made a self-audition tape because everybody has to read for things now. You know, it's not really um, anybody, no matter how many movies you've done, you need to audition, and it's, it's strange because you, you can look at other people's, you look at the work, you can look at previous DVDs, you're acting real, whatever. So many people have to audition. You know, I bumped into Ann Archer the other day at an audition, you know. And the bottom line is it's become very impersonal. And everybody's now making self-tapes of certain scenes that they want to see you for. So they don't even meet you in the offices anymore. You're just creating your own, you know, tape, sending it in on an email. And, you know, you hire someone with a camera, and you can do take after take. So that's better than being in a little office uh, with someone shooting you for you know two takes and it's over, but the level of of of, of communication is very limited now. It's so different than it was when I arrived here, and you'd have meetings with people and talk about old movies and things you had in common, you know, and then go right into the work. What do you like the most about it? I guess when you're working with a really good filmmaker, when you're working with Quentin Tarantino. You know, when when you're working with characters who know what they're doing and the focus is rich, whether it's a young actor, a young director named, you know, Eric Edabari that I did a movie called uh, uh, Bare Knuckles with, or you're working with, you know, one of my favorites, Quentin Tarantino, they know. And the rehearsal process is so exciting. And rehearsal and development of a project, rather than going into it cold with two days Notice, and that's what they give you now. In the audition process, they call you on a Monday and say, come in on Tuesday or have this tape ready on Tuesday. It's nonsense. How can anyone truly show their wares in a short period of time? So what I love about it is when you do get a job and there's a month or two weeks prep with the director, it's heaven because the final product you're truly proud of because you've been able to prepare the way you were taught 20 years ago about preparing for, say, scene work in class, you have time. And that's, the, you know, it's a great luxury a lot of big stars have, and um, it's dissipating a lot in the industry itself. Right. John, Jonathan from Ohio says you've had the opportunity to be a part of many types of film and television projects. So what do you think about reality TV? Most of your work has been on the artistic side of Hollywood, scripts, directors, actors. Do you think it's a sad direction that we're all moving in? Well, it... it it is. I mean, I, I personally, 
uh, I'm developing something called So You Want to Be a Cowboy. And this is, uh, you know, as if some greenhorn would come to us and we teach him how to rope and fast draw and ride and uh, eventually do cowboy mounted shooting. But it's not hokey. It's really, if someone had a dream of being a fireman, a policeman, or a cowboy, I bring them onto the show. And I'm developing that because I love Westerns and I'm a big proponent of the Western. But a lot of the reality shows, um, people seem to be excited about what they call a celebrity. A lot of the people on the show, I, I, from my point of view, I, I don't think have accomplished a great deal you know, in life to have that kind of audiences that they do. Um, I'm not a big fan of the show, uh, of the shows. I watch a great deal of some of the things on History Channel and, and Discovery. But people are going in that direction. And I guess if the scripted material is interesting and not about just chasing guys in a club or whatever, you know, I'm all for it if it's intelligent. If it's not, um, it's not my cup of tea. Let me ask you, two of my favorite people in the world are... Your twins, Jesse and Rachel. So I'm going to ask you first of all, how has you know everything that you've been through in your journey? And this show is about the journey. You know the way you were raised and your career affected the way you've parented your twins. Well, you know, we tried for years to have babies, and and uh, you know, five years, and my children were um, frozen embryo transplants, and having them took the focus off. Uh, the business for me. It just allowed me to realize that there wasn't just the movie business. It wasn't just theater. There was really something else in life. And when they were born in 1990, I realized, and many times I, I didn't go out, I stayed home, sometimes turned on different projects, because there was this beauty, this child, this new life, that you could see so many times you forget what it was like to be like a child and then you relive it when you have your own the the loves the values and how much they need us what we really represent to children um, it's almost like what we represent to pets you know it's really the, the the father figure the the paternal involvement of the children and the growth process because it isn't easy after you're dead 12 years old you're a bank and a chauffeur you know, and, <laughs> you know, and you hope that's where you are. <laughs> you know, and now that my kids are 21, and my daughter is a mensch, and she truly, you know, she runs a uh, a woman's sober facility while she's studying in college to be a psychologist, and my son's holding down two jobs, and he's an actor. And there is that transition of 16, 17, 18. That's very tough, and then it goes on to just them being young adults. Unfortunately, you don't see them anymore, which is a real drag. But they allowed me to realize, I think it affected my work enormously. And my agent tells me that, and you kind of don't know. But it, take, it makes you much more vulnerable in a very tough Sodom and Gomorrah environment that I live in. Well, I know, I know you know, for our listeners, I mean, I, I've, I've had several emails come to me. It's like, how do I know so many people that I have on the show? Because I probably refer to a lot of people as my dear friend or someone I know. I mean, you truly are one of my dearest friends because we met in Hollywood. We were involved in a picture together uh, back to 1987. Um, uh, you know, we share our children, are close, and the way we interact with, with each other 
you mean a great deal to me on every level, and you know that, and there's a lot of love between us. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we tend to look at life similar. Um, I know that I have troubles balancing family and work. It's always been a difficult task for me because I'm involved in so many different things, and I love doing this show because it helps me take myself out of me and, and look at other people and try to identify. How do you balance your family and work? And, and uh, uh, hopefully you're doing a better job than I've done. I don't know, Jimmy. I always admire, you know, I know your kids, and your kids are sensational kids, uh, sensational kids, and they've grown and grown and grown. So I don't think you've done a bad job at all. Um, I you. wish most more people were like you that I know here. The, the balancing, you know, of a family, families become far more important than ever before to me. And I, the acceptance of the children having their own life now at the age of 21 has become much more apparent and necessary for me to accept. It's, it, you know, so many people think in my position that, well, you turned out okay. You know, and, and the kids always say, Daddy, you were wild and crazy as a kid, but you turned out okay. And for me, I'm learning how not to be so hard on myself. Uh-huh. That I'm not, I never look at the success or the body of work as some great accomplishment. It's just not what I do. I'm still on that quest to find something in an art form, whether it be a theater or or, or, or a movie, or a woman, or an accomplishment of my children that'll take me into feeling really good about Martin Cove. I'm very hard on myself, and uh, no matter what I do, it's never really enough. And uh, I'm how is- you know, and people say, "Well, you, but everybody knows who you are. You go to Jakarta, you go here. Doesn't that make a difference?" And deep down inside. It's just an edge. Right, right, right. There's got to be more to it, and I think that's what we both struggle with. How has your Jewish heritage uh, affected you, and what does it mean to you? I know I came to the Brits when Jesse, in fact, Jerry Weintraub was there. Uh, How has that meant a difference in your life? Well, you know, Passover is next week, and uh, I'm going to have a Seder here, and I remember, you know, I, I just take great pride in being Jewish and and love all the holidays. And I was born on Purim, and I always call, you know, speak to the family. And I threw a Seder once here with John Avelson, the director, and a variety of people from the Karate Kid. Oddly enough, I dressed them up in dusters, gave them revolvers and cowboy hats, and they were all non-Jewish, everybody. And I conducted the Seder the way I wanted to. And it was I always get these phone calls around Passover from all these people, and it was a very Hollywood Seder in my own house. But everybody was armed and had cowboy hats and, you know, surgically only dusted from the Italian westerns. And I make my own matzah here. And, you know, to me, it's a lot of fun. And well, one of these days, while I'm still on this planet, I'm going to come to that Seder. Let me ask you, um, you know, uh, what are you currently working on? And, and, and as part of that, where do you kind of see yourself in the industry in the next 10 years? I'm currently working on a play on a Western that I'm directing. It's um, L. Ron Hubbard wrote a lot of um, comic books that have been transcribed into radio shows, and a lot of them are Westerns. So I'm doing one in, um, on April 21st 
in the Phoenix area, and it's an, in an amphitheater, the L. Ron Hubbard Museum, and it's in uh, just off Camelback. I think people can uh, people can go to uh, Golden Age theater.com and find out exactly what um, it'll be there April 21st but I'm I'm directing my son Jesse in it but I'm I'm trying to coordinate some projects to rejuvenate the western and it's a tough job and I see myself you know I've directed you know silk stockings and a variety of things and I see myself being more in that directorial air in that directorial form and and producing, because it's really exciting, and you get involved from the beginning. And the economy, it's tough to raise money, but I really want to do a Western to show the world what you and I grew up on, that right. American cinematic heritage. I mean, well, I, I, you know, you've always wanted to do that. I think it's going to happen for you. I, we only got about a minute left. I want to ask you, as you look back on your journey, Marty Cove, uh, what what do you feel is the meaning of life? The meaning of life for me is to accept oneself, to truly accept oneself. And I'm really just learning about that, to accept what you have accomplished and really feel good about it. You know, the, the goals we set out for ourselves, you know, 25 years ago, very few of us ever reached them, and somehow to truly understand that you can feel good about who you are because of what you've accomplished, whether it's on the scale of 2 or 10 or 27, because we've always put ourselves up to accomplishing so much, and it's pretty much impossible. And well, I, th- I think, you know, uh, first of all, it's a great answer because I think if you do that, you truly can give back because you can feel good about yourself. I, uh, uh, I, I've really enjoyed our time together. I've enjoyed our friendship over really two and a half decades. Uh, I appreciate your time. Uh, unfortunately, it's up. And I want to thank Marty Cove for sharing his journey with us. We're very appreciative that you're able to join us today and take the time to give our listeners an opportunity to get to know you. I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in to A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, signing off. Please join us next Friday at 3 o'clock Eastern for our next episode with Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, Senior Advisor of the State Department, and author of Failing America's Faithful. Kathleen is the eldest child of Robert F. Kennedy and Ethel Kennedy. And until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope, inspiration, success. And to you, Marty, I just can tell you that I hope we have another 25 years together of our dear friendship. Fred sends his best. I give my love to your beautiful children from Lucas and Dylan and myself and Marcy, and I thank you for your body of work that you've contributed to so many movie people and so many faithful people that have followed your career. Thank you, Jimmy. It's just wonderful, wonderful just communicating with you, and I just adore your show as uh, so many people. Thank you, my friend. All my love. Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week.